The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. In the title of our sermon this morning, Slaves of God, Slaves of God. This is part two, Romans chapter six, verses 15 through 23. In the course of working now verse by verse through Romans chapter 6, we have asserted that Paul has primarily been confronting unbiblical notions of grace. He's been dealing with abuses of grace. In particular, those unbiblical notions of grace that seem to arise in connection with a justification of a sinner through faith alone in Christ alone apart from any works of the law. It's that unbiblical notion of grace that is connected to justification by faith. At the heart of the problem really is a a misunderstanding of grace. But at the heart of the problem is an often willful misunderstanding of a Christian's ongoing relationship to sin. And so that's what Paul has set out to deal with now in Romans chapter 6. Charles Spurgeon said, we can never be happy, restful, or spiritually healthy until we become holy. We can't be happy, restful, or spiritually healthy until we're holy. In order to be happy, we need to be holy. We must be set free from the dominion of sin. We must be set free from our slavery to sin. But how is that freedom to be gained? How are we to attain to it? Is it gained through the gospel or isn't it? Does the gospel set a sinner free from the dominion of sin or doesn't it? Am I forgiven in this life only to wait to be free in the next? Or am I free in this life? Is grace simply the disposition of God to treat me better than I deserve? Or is there more to grace than that? Is there more to grace than that? Isn't grace also the power that God gives, the strength that he supplies, not only to forgive me for what I've done, but to change who I am? Certainly, grace encompasses all of that, doesn't it? Do you agree with me? (laughs) Certainly, grace encompasses all of that and more. Certainly, grace encompasses the disposition of God to treat me better than I deserve. Grace is undeserved favor, so to speak. And that gracious disposition of God extends not only to treating me better than I deserve, but it extends to my very nature. That grace, that gracious disposition, extends to the very core of my fallen human being. Extends to the core of who I am. Declaring us holy without making us holy would be like forgiving us of our sin or forgiving us of our rebellion and leaving us rebels. Right? Calling us clean and yet leaving us filthy. That's not, that's not the salvation I read about in the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. Justification without sanctification is not salvation. Do you see? It's at this point that we need not just God's gracious disposition toward us in treating us better than what we deserve. It's at this point that we need God's gracious power supplying what we need to change who we are. Spurgeon said again, the heart is so hard 
The will is so obstinate. The passions are so furious. The thoughts so volatile. The imagination so ungovernable. The desires are so wild that the man feels that he has a den of wild beasts within him, which will eat him up sooner than be ruled by him. We may say of our fallen nature what the Lord said to Job concerning Leviathan. Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? We do not rule ourselves. We do not govern ourselves. We're ungovernable in that sense. A man, Spurgeon says, a man might as well hope to hold the north wind in the hollow of his hand as expect to be controlled by his own strength, those boisterous powers which dwell within his fallen nature. There is a greater feat here than any of the fabled labors of Hercules. God is wanted here. God is desperately needed here. Isn't that right? Jesus Christ died at Calvary's cross in our place, not only to free us from the penalty of our sin, but Jesus Christ died at Calvary's cross to also free us from the power of sin, the dominion of sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin altogether. When at once, brother and sister, when at once you lay hold of that truth through faith in Jesus Christ, the truth that is death to the power of sin is your death to the power of sin, then you are well on your way to being finally free from the presence of sin. And not until that point, right? Progressively in this life, perfected in the life which is to come. What is necessary to this end? What is necessary to this aim? Grace. Grace. Grace supplies all our need. The grace of God gives us all that we need. How does he do it? How do we access it? How does he give it? He gives it through faith in his son. Through faith in his son, our God who cannot lie said this in Ezekiel 36, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And here, you will keep my judgments and do them. Look at all that God does for us to eventuate in the fact that you will keep my judgments and do them. That's grace. That's grace. That's grace, not only the disposition of God to treat us better than we deserve, that's grace as that disposition extending to God's power and supply necessary to change who we are. That power that flows from that disposition to make us better than we are. That kind of grace is not a license to sin. You see? It's no license to sin. It is the power by which we overcome sin. Now, Paul answers those ill-conceived notions of grace or answers those abuses of grace beginning in chapter 6, verse 1 with a question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In other words, grace doesn't abound that you might continue in sin. Grace abounds through our union with Jesus Christ to free us from the dominion of sin that we might not sin. We have been united together with him in the likeness of his death to sin, and we have been united together with him in the likeness of his resurrection so that in the power of God's grace, through grace, we might walk in newness of life. Chapter 6, verse 15. 
Well, can't we continue in sin then because we're no longer under law but under grace? You see the kind of question they're asking? Grace does away with the law's authority to condemn us, and that's because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. But grace doesn't set aside the law's authority to command us. Far from that, grace empowers us to obey it. So we began to consider our text in part one last week. We examined Paul's primary concern in verse 15. His primary concern. Having been justified by grace through faith, entirely apart from any works of the law, and having been delivered from the condemning power or the condemning authority of the law, does it really matter how I live? Can't I live how I please? Can't I continue in sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? Paul's answer again is emphatic. Certainly not, Paul says. The very notion is absurd. May it never be, God forbid. In order to support now his answer there and to build his case for the nature of that saving, sanctifying grace, Paul then appeals to a general principle in verse 16. And the general principle is this. You are a slave of what or who you obey. You're a slave of who you obey. Verse 16. Do you not know? In other words, this is common sense. Common sense. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? The issue at hand is not our slavery. We are all slaves. The issue at hand is not the fact of your slavery. The issue at hand is the nature of our slavery. You are either a slave of sin leading to death or... You are a slave of obedience leading to righteousness. Now think for a moment, put yourself in one of those two categories, right? We're here as the gathered people of God because you've professed faith in Jesus Christ. And by your profession, by your confession, you're saying, I'm a slave of righteousness. I've given up my life of sin. I've turned over living life for myself. I've abandoned that futile hope. And I'm living for the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're a Christian, that's what you believe right? I am a slave of righteousness. I am pursuing him, right? Or, or you are a slave of sin leading to death. You're one of the two. You've not turned from your sin. In fact, you're serving your sin. You're serving yourself through your sin, right? Living life for yourself, living it up in your sin, given over, given over to the lust of the flesh, indulging yourself. You do something good, you're doing it for yourself, your motives are selfish. You're given over to anger, given over to lust. You're given over to sin. You're either a slave of sin leading to death or you are a slave of obedience leading to righteousness, a slave of God. In other words, a habitual pattern of sinning demonstrates or manifests a condition of slavery to sin. A habitual pattern of sinning manifests your slavery to sin. A habitual pattern of obedience demonstrates or manifests a condition of slavery to obedience or of slavery to righteousness. How you live matters. The choices that you make matter. When Paul describes each of us as presenting ourselves as slaves to obey, he's referring to the first steps that, take, that we take in either of one of two directions, two opposite directions, our first steps. We either, as a circumstance presents itself to us, as we find ourselves faced with temptation, so to speak, we present ourselves either in obedience to sin or 
we present ourselves in obedience to righteousness, one or the other. As we submit ourselves to either one of these two mutually exclusive directions with increasing frequency or with increasing regularity, the more that we come under its dominating force or its dominating influence and the more that the slavery is made manifest. To the one who is a slave of sin, they are given over to sinful decisions. Faced with a circumstance where their will comes in direct conflict with the revealed will of God, they choose their will. And the more that they choose their will and choose their will and choose their will and choose their will, the more that that slavery to sin is entrenched in the heart and in the mind, such that that habitual pattern of sinning demonstrates, demonstrates slavery to sin. For the Christian, the one who's been given a new heart, the one who's been indwelt by God's spirit, that one fighting against sin, resisting against sin and pursuing, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the more consistently and the more with regularity that they present their members, their faculties, the faculties of their soul, the more that the faculties of their soul are presented to God as instruments of righteousness, the more that that decision is reinforced, the more that their resolve is strengthened through faith in his son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the more that that direction is a manifest of a slavery to righteousness and a slavery of God. One or the other. One or the other. Paul is not speaking of perfection here, right? But Paul is speaking of direction. Direction. He does not mean that the Christian will be sinlessly perfect. But rather manifesting. Manifesting the bent of his nature toward righteousness by the willful choices that he makes. In the same way that the sinner, the lost sinner, manifests the bent of his nature towards sin by the choices that he makes. The Christian, his renewed mind, his renewed heart, driving his motives, fueling his affections, compelling his conduct, presents his members, the faculties of his soul, as instruments to righteousness and slavery to God. Now, having set forth that general principle in verse 16, you are slaves of whom you obey, we began last week to consider the righteous response then of the Christian Verses 17 through 19. Look at verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. How is it that you obeyed? Grace, right? Grace. And having been set free from sin, did you obey in your own strength? <laughs> no, it's entirely grace. Our salvation is all of grace. Right? Did you greet it? Look what I've done. <laughs> like, look what I've done. No. <laughs> it's because of the grace of God. Notice the passive. The passives. Um, that form of doctrine to which you were, that form of doctrine to which I came, <laughs> to which I delivered myself. No, it's to which you were delivered. Uh, God handed you over to that. Amen. And having been set free from sin, verse 18, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice the passives. Having been set free. Did you free yourself? No, you were set free. Right? Did you make yourself a slave of righteousness? No, you were made. You became slaves of righteousness. That language, slaves of righteousness, that language may be shocking uh, to many, right? There are many... Many who would conceive of salvation as complete freedom 
from any and all restraint, right? Freedom is to be free from any and all restraint. So salvation is to be free, to be free. And not only unbearing, so to speak, the, the yoke of the law, um, they would free themselves from any restraint whatsoever. I'm free at last. Live as I please. They would take no issue with the first half of Paul's sentence, I've been set free from sin. No issue with that. But they would take serious issue with the second part of Paul's sentence. The crass wording associated with the second half, you have become slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from slavery to sin, Paul is arguing that we have been enslaved to another master, to a new master. And the way that he chooses to describe the transformation of our nature... To the one who is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? We're a different person. We've been changed, transformed. The way that Paul chooses to describe the transformation of our nature such that a Christian transformed by grace is not simply at liberty to continue in sin, but compelled by his own desires, compelled by his own will, compelled by a new nature, compelled by motives and affections to obey righteousness, The way that Paul chooses to describe that transformation is through the illustration or analogy of slavery. Slavery. That would have been a graphic picture in the first century of an unjust subjugation, but even more so a graphic picture in our own century of injustice, right? Gross injustice. So why would Paul choose to use the illustration or the analogy, the metaphor of slavery to make his point. Paul says it in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I want us to get this point together. In one sense, we're weak in the flesh because of our ignorance, right? Because of our ignorance, we don't know. Sometimes it takes a a shocking illustration to convey to us the depth of what is being communicated. Right? We've got to be jostled, so to speak, to understand what's being said. But Paul's not referring here to the ignorance of our understanding. Paul is speaking rather of the weakness of our flesh. The weakness of our flesh. In other words, as Paul is soon going to say in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I delight with the law of God according to the inward man. I delight with the law of God. But, Paul says, I see another law I see another principle in my members, in my carnal flesh, warring against the law of my mind. And that principle, that other law in our members, that principle doesn't like to be subjugated. That principle, when God says yes, that principle says no, right? That principle does not want to be ruled. Our fallen flesh craves absolute and autonomous freedom. That's chapter 7. It's the bent of the flesh toward that kind of freedom that raises the questions that Paul raises in the first place. It's that bent of our flesh toward sin that provokes those questions that Paul asks. Well, if grace abounds when sin abounds, can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Paul, you've said we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, doesn't that mean I can sin because I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace, right? It's the bent of the flesh that craves that autonomous freedom. If sin abounds and grace abounds all the more, then surely that means I can sin all I want to. I can live as I please, right? We're no longer under law, we're under grace. Well, surely that means I can sin all I want to. I can live how I please. 
to every Christian in here, I would ask you this question. Don't you sense within yourself a remaining drift toward lawlessness that you have to fight against? You sense that, don't you? Every Christian deals with that. A remaining corruption, a remaining bent toward sin, that gravitates toward sin, that gravitates toward self-indulgence, right? A principle in your flesh that resists accountability, that bristles against accountability. A principle in your flesh that bristles against the very word requirement. (laughs) We don't like it. That's because of the bent of our flesh toward sin against being ruled. We don't naturally like those words. We don't want to be regulated. We don't want to be controlled. We don't like slavery. So what does Paul do? Paul is aware well of that, or he's well aware of that fact. Well aware of the root of the problem. Paul knows it. He knows that's our bent. He attributes those abuses of grace, those misconceptions of grace that he started with, he attributes that faulty thinking among Christians to the flesh, to the flesh, to the weakness, the weakness of our flesh. We tend to think that way as Christians because of the weakness of our flesh. We tend to misinterpret the true liberty of the Christian, despite the fact that the Bible is so clear in explaining it and in defining it. We tend to misinterpret it not as freedom from slavery to sin so that we might pursue righteousness as slaves of God. We don't tend to interpret it that way, but rather as freedom from slavery to sin so that we might live as we please. Paul understands that as free autonomous creatures. (laughs) Those two things are oxymorons, right? Creatures mean, mean that we were created and yet we want to be autonomous. So Paul uses, in order to make his point, in order for us to get the point, Paul uses a base human illustration to make it clear so that no one can misconstrue what Paul is saying. You are not saved to be autonomous. You are not autonomous. You were made to be slaves of righteousness. Slaves of God. There is no room for a divided loyalty. Now the wondrous, the wondrous message of grace, the wondrous message of how God has created us is such that when you are transformed in your nature, when your heart, that heart of stone, has been ripped from your breast and replaced with a heart of flesh, And that is the great desire of your heart, the desire of your heart, the joy of your heart, the hope of your heart, the rejoicing of your heart is to be a slave of God, to be a slave of righteousness, to to obey him every jot and tittle with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength because you love him, because you're grateful to him, right? No room for a divided loyalty. Verse 19, verse 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, you see how the pattern perpetuates itself, right? The more that you decide to choose, when you're standing at the fork in the road and you choose to obey unrighteousness, the more that you choose to obey unrighteousness, the more that that choice weakens your resolve against it. 
weakens your defense against it until it is no longer your choice. And you are on that path, you are on that road, it is lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Don't think that decision to sin is an isolated decision or a harmless decision or a decision that won't influence you. That decision is a deadly decision and it leads to death. It is lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now, even as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now, having been justified by faith, now, having been reconciled to God, present your members as slaves of righteousness. Our sinful hearts are deceitful. The hymnist says, prone to wander. Lord, how I feel it, right? We are prone to lay hold of some self-justifying thought, prone to lay hold of error that will justify our sin, prone to lay hold of some deceit that will excuse our faulty, our stinking thinking, right? That we might be free from what in the flesh feels like burdensome or feels oppressive, so that we might be free. Evangelism. Evangelism. Oh, it's not my gift. It's not my gift. What a, a twisted interpretation of that text. <laughs> you ever studied that text out or actually read that text in the Bible? It's not talking about that. Evangelism is not my gift. Not my gift. I evangelize my children. And? <laughs> You never, or very rarely, do you hear someone faithful in evangelism say, it's not my gift. Generally speaking, it's the humble one, faithful in evangelism, who say, I'm, I don't feel guilt, gifted. <laughs> but they're very evangelistic. Right? Tithing. What's well, not repeated in the New Testament? That's not true, by the way. Rarely do you hear someone who is abundantly faithful in tithing speaking against tithing. Paul's use of the illustration, Paul's use of the terminology of slavery communicates in explicit terms the Christian's responsibility to and accountability for absolute submission to all the revealed will of God. Right? Paul isn't drawing some equivalency here between human slavery and all its degradation to our enslavement to righteousness and our enslavement to God. He's not drawing some equivalency between the two in that way. The two couldn't be any more different, right? But where those two illustrations or where those two pictures converge in what they convey, where they connect, where they converge in the subordination of our will to another, that's where Paul chooses to make his point. And that is because of the weakness of our flesh. We're bent toward self-autonomy. And Paul says, you are a slave. You have no autonomy. Do you see the importance of Paul's illustration? The language that he's using, why he chose this picture. He chose to speak in human terms in this way because of the weakness of our flesh. Now, lest we think wrongly about the nature of our new slavery, Paul then calls us to consider a very clear contrast 
in support of his point. A very clear contrast. Slavery to God is the highest form of freedom. Slavery to God is the highest form of freedom. Look at the clear contrast, verse 20 through 23, and let's see if that plays out. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Interesting, isn't it? Slavery and freedom. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, we have the opposite, don't we? And having become slaves of God, a different freedom, a different slavery, you have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think with me now about the contrast, about the contrast. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we exchange one form of slavery for another form of slavery. That's Paul's point to this point, right? We're exchanging one form of slavery for another form of slavery. But Paul also explains that we exchange one form of freedom for another form of freedom, okay? Which of the two is true slavery, is true slavery, and which of the two is true freedom, right? Which one is true? To provide us with an answer to that question, Paul is asking the Christians in Rome to compare and to contrast their former lives as slaves of sin with their present lives as slaves of God, okay? Their current life in union with Jesus Christ as slaves of righteousness. First, Paul calls them to remember when they were lost. Verse 20, a lost sinner under the dominion of sin, enslaved to sin, Christian. Do you remember when you were a slave to sin? Do you remember? You likely argued for free will like it was a hill to die on, right? Free will, free will, free will, free will, free will. (laughs) But your nature is fallen. Your nature is corrupt. Your nature enslaved to sin. Your faculties are corrupt. Every piece and part of your being polluted by sin. Doesn't sound like freedom, does it? Your actions are certainly sinful. The Bible says, by the way, Romans 14, that anything not done in faith is sin. Not Anything not done that terminates on the glory of God is sinful. Every piece and part of your being polluted by sin. Your actions sinful, your thoughts sinful. If the world could see what you were thinking at all times, right? The intentions of your heart sinful. Your desires perverted by sin. Your imagination corrupted by sin. Your affections perverted by sin. This is the doctrine of total depravity. You were given to fleshly lusts whether those sinful lusts were sexual, whether they were emotional, like outbursts of anger or complaining, whether those sinful lusts were physical, overeating or drunkenness, self-indulgent, like lying or covetousness. Most sins are a combination of these. Whatever they were, you were sinning constantly, consistently, and without remorse without regret, often completely ignorant of the fact that you were sinning as a rebel against God. You were enslaved to your sin, slavery to sin. But you know what? You were free in regard to righteousness. 
free in regard to righteousness. That doesn't mean that you were free from any accountability to righteousness. Because had you died, you would have faced accountability for your unrighteousness. You would have perished eternally in hell. You're going to face the the Lord in judgment for your unrighteousness. But being free in regard to righteousness means that you had no true concern for righteousness. No true regard for righteousness. You may have occasionally felt guilty, but that's because God has given you a conscience. But you weren't a slave to righteousness. You were a slave to yourself, enslaved to your physical lusts. You gave little or no regard for the authority of God's righteous law over you. Righteousness didn't exert or enforce or exercise any mastery over you. It didn't master you. You were no double-minded man or double-minded woman. You were in single-minded pursuit of your lusts, your sin. When you were faced with a fork in the road, and had to choose between presenting your, your, the faculties of your soul, your members as instruments of unrighteousness leading to sin, or to present them as members, your members as instruments of righteousness or obedience leading to righteousness, what were you going to choose? That wasn't even really an issue. You chose this direction over and over and over, and over, and over, and over, and over again, manifesting, demonstrating that you are a slave to sin. Do you see? You are going to go one way. One way. And at the end of it all, I did it my... Right. (laughs) That's slavery to sin. (laughs) I don't want to do it my way. (laughs) How do you know that to be true? How do you know it to be true? The Bible says that you will know them by their fruit, by their fruit. So Paul asks in verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit did you have in your slavery to sin? When you were living for yourself, what fruit did it produce? When you were free in regard to righteousness, when you presented your members, the faculties of your soul, as slaves of uncleanness, when you gave yourself over to do the bidding of your carnal flesh, what benefit did you derive from it? What profit? The only fruit accruing from our service to sin are things that now fill us with shame. That's the only fruit. When you see them as they really are, that's the fruit. Guilt, embarrassment, remorse, shame, shame. At the time, you gloried in them, right? That girl that you got, (laughs) that epic party with the free alcohol, right? (laughs) I lived it up when I was in college. Boy, those were the days. Those were the days. And maybe you want to send your kids to school now so they can experience life like you did. You don't, don't want them to miss out. You felt that way then because that was evidence or a fruit of your slavery to sin. That's an evidence of your slavery to sin. But when you, brother, sister, when you see things for what they are, filth, uncleanness, wickedness, rebellion against God, misery, You see those things as nothing more than indulging yourself. And indulging yourself often at the expense of others. The people you hurt. 
the lies that you told? What is the fruit of that life? Nothing but things of which now you are ashamed. And you should be ashamed of yourself. Right? I should be ashamed of myself. You are filled with a true and right sense of shame. We should be deeply ashamed at those things. I don't know about you, but there are times when I just, almost unaware, find myself thinking of that former life and some sin will come to mind that I had long forgotten. And it's right back in front of my face. How shameful, how abhorrent in the sight of God that is. And I repent of that, ask God to forgive me for that, and rejoice in Jesus Christ. Well, what a shameful, what a shameful thing. Genuine believers are not those who excuse a former life of sin, but genuine believers are those who rightly feel a deep sense of guilt and shame for their former slavery to sin. It's one of the the foundations, if you will, on which a genuine believer rejoices in Jesus Christ and is grateful to Jesus Christ and loves Jesus Christ, finds Jesus Christ to be more precious than anything else in light of that contrast, right? Ashamed of the way that you acted, ashamed of the things that you thought, ashamed of the way that you live. Psalm 25, 7, do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. So let me ask you, brother, sister, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you were now ashamed? Are you not ashamed? What fruit could you point to from that former life? No good fruit. That's the answer to the question Paul intends. No good fruit. Why? Verse 21, for the end of those things is death. The end of those things is not fruit to holiness, which is the opposite. (laughs) The end of those things is death. It produces death. Not simply physical death, but death in its ultimate sense. Death in its ultimate expression. And to think, that's how we lived all the while that God preserved our life. Right? Provided for us, allowed us, to benefit from the blessings of his common grace. We breathed his air. We ate his food. We partook of his blessings. According to Paul, Acts 14, he gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That's how good God is, how compassionate God is, how patient God is, that he didn't turn you into a grease spot the moment you first sinned never leaving us without a witness of his goodness and grace, Paul says, Acts 14. But until the day that the Lord saved you, you despised the riches of his goodness. You despised his forbearance. That doesn't merely mean patience. But forbearance means putting up with you until he saved you, right? Putting up with you until your sins were forgiven in the blood of a lamb. His patience not knowing, Romans 2, 4, that the goodness of God should lead you to repentance. All of that, all of that should lead you to repentance, should lead you to abandon your slavery to sin and embrace slavery to Jesus Christ. It's shameful how he treated him. 
Some of you are shamefully treating him in this way right now. Right? Right now. Dismissing his word. Excusing yourself. Continuing to live in rebellion against him. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed. The fact that you're not ashamed is further evidence of your slavery to sin. You must turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Right? The end of those things is death. You hang over hell even now. The mouth of hell gapes, waiting to receive you. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ calls to you. Abandon that vile futility. Why will you die? Why will you die? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked one would turn from the evil of his way and live. Turn from your enslavement to sin in repentance. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ in faith, and Jesus Christ will set you free. Jesus Christ will set you free. What then, what then is the fruit of that freedom? Verse 22. In contrast, but, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Lasting, permanent True, pure, good, precious, valuable fruit, right? Fruit of which you will not be ashamed. Fruit that will not disappoint. The fruit of holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And the end of that path is not everlasting death, but rather everlasting life. A life that is not earned as the wages of righteous works, but eternal life that is the free gift of God in union with Jesus Christ our Lord. Four, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a triumphant conclusion to a magnificent treatise. Amen. Romans chapter 6. Sin is a liar. Sin is a cruel master. Sin has never produced one shred of good or lasting fruit. It promises pleasure. Right? It promises pleasure. It seduces with the promise of something better. The only power it has is to provide it for a very short time, an empty pleasure. But then it cruelly, through that, brings forth death to all who serve it. Sin never tells the truth. It doesn't tell the truth. Sin will kill you. It intends to kill you. But it doesn't tell you that. Sin can only earn for you a wage. It's going to pay you, and the wage that it pays you is death. You get death for sin. If you live according to the flesh, Paul will say soon, you will die. And the death that Paul speaks of here is not merely physical death. This death is contrasted in the very same verse with eternal life. In other words, this death is the wage earned by those who serve sin. It is ultimately a death that is awarded to those who are the servants of sin as they are cast with the devil and his angels into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. It's a death wherein the Bible speaks of the smoke of their torment as ascending forever and ever And they have no rest day or night. In other words, 
It's not this foolish notion of annihilationism or this foolish notion of destruction. The smoke of their torment, not their dead body, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no death ultimately, permanently. They have no rest day or night. They're in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the servants or the slaves of sin receive what is their wages, where they suffer the just and terrible wrath of God poured out full force, full strength into the cup of his indignation, undiluted with mercy, undiluted with compassion for eternity, in a place where the death is as eternal as the life is eternal. The same word for eternal used of both the death and the life. Do you see? Don't attempt to comfort yourself with foolish notions of annihilationism. Don't listen to the worldly lies of secular humanism or evolutionary atheism that says we're just animals. When you die, that's it. It's nothing. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The wages of sin is a death, a death that will never end. You will be eternally dying without any hope of escaping its grip entirely so far from autonomy or absolute freedom. Your subjection to the grip of death is absolute. Revelation chapter 20. Turn there with me. Revelation chapter 20. This is what that looks like. Verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. This creation will melt with a fervent heat. It's going to be rolled up like a scroll. And the Lord is working us toward a new heavens and a new earth. There was found no place for them. The judge of all the earth has come. He's going to make all things new. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. I believe in Jesus. The dead were judged according to their works. Well, I'm a Christian. I've been going to church since I was three. The dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Well, I said that prayer, and I meant it when I said it. The dead are judged according to their works. I went to Mass. I took the sacraments. The dead are judged according to his works, right? Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone who is a slave to sin, anyone receiving the wages of their sin, anyone judged according to their works, which are sinful, and thus receiving the just retribution for their sinful works, anyone not found written, in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, was cast into the lake of fire. It's the second death. 
Just as there are two masters, there are two destinations, do you see? And just as there are two masters, there are two rewards. For the wages of sin is death. But, in contrast, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not the wages of sin is death, but the gift for all your hard work or the reward for all that you've done, or the reward because you're a good person, or the reward because you walked the aisle and you did that thing, right? No, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not really a choice, is it? It's not really a choice. Why do you choose then, if you've never turned to Christ, why do you choose to continue to reject this? Reject the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when you were lost, brother, sister, right? You remember, you remember all the reasons why you chose to ignore Jesus Christ, to reject the gospel, and to continue in your sin, things of which you are now ashamed, right? You here today, if you've never turned from your sin, you're not following Jesus Christ, you're living in sin. You're living in your sin. You're living in rebellion against him. Why do you continue to choose to reject him? The deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a liar. You serve a cruel and lying master. You ask a child, you present this to a child, and you ask a child, what do you want? Give me Jesus Christ in heaven. Right? So why is it that when you become wiser, <laughs> you grow up a little, that's no more a decision that you would make. The deceitfulness of sin. You've been hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see? You serve a cruel and lying master. To those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been united to him through faith, those given his righteousness as a gift of God's grace, a righteousness by which they are justified, a righteousness by which they are reconciled to God, that one receives his fruit to holiness. And the end of that, that fruit-bearing, issues an eternal life. Flip the page and look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, and look at verse 1. Now I saw then a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, is with men, and God will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It's not really a choice, is it? Moses said to the children of Israel before they entered the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Moses said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life 
that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Let's trust him together, amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we look to your truth. Your word is truth, and we take you at your word. Lord, you've given ample evidence that this is the revealed word of our living God. And Lord, you've called us in grace and in mercy, condescending to call us, sending your own Son from glory to the depths of this wicked and perverse generation to obedience, to the point of uh, obedience in his death on the cross uh, to call us and to present us with your grace and your loving kindness in the gospel that we might turn from our sin and living for ourselves, turn from our enslavement to sin in faith and trust to Jesus Christ, whereby we might be set free from sin's dominating force, set free from the penalty of sin, set free from the curse of the law that hangs over our head, and made sons and daughters in the kingdom, made trophies of grace, made slaves of righteousness and slaves of our God who is good. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have turned us yourself in your grace, have turned us from sin and self to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and pray, Lord, for continued grace, continued strength, continued power to when we are faced with that fork in the road, rather than presenting our members as instruments of unrighteousness and uncleanness to sin, that we would, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in gratitude for all that he has done, present our members as instruments of righteousness, instruments of obedience as slaves of God. We love you, Lord. We don't do that because we believe that we somehow earn or merit justification or right standing with you on the basis of our works. Um, That is the lie of Satan. But rather, Lord, um, because of the gift of your grace, because of the glory of your grace, for all that it says about you, your loving kindness toward us. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Uh, May it be pleasing in your sight. Uh, May we worship and praise the Lamb who is slain in eternity with all the assembled saints for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.